HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. I'm Lisa Held, a food journalist and podcast host presenting Behind the Label with American Humane. Produced by Heritage Radio Network for Springer Mountain Farms, this podcast series dives into what the American Humane certified label really means. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, this is Dana Callen, and you're listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I interview an extraordinary human whose wisdom influences me, inspires me, and motivates me to do better and be better. Today, I am very excited to have on the show Carolina Saavedra, who works both at Stone Barn Center in Westchester and as a cook at her family's restaurant in the Bronx. The restaurant called La Morada is a community center, a gathering place. On the face of it, those two places are spectacularly different. One is on a Rockefeller estate, one in Mott Haven, a part of the Bronx that is under-resourced. Carolina, I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you for having me. You hit it perfectly. You see two organizations, well, a lot of people would see completely opposite or different, but the beauty of it, it's that I am here bridging these two places, which are all in the long run trying to fight for a better food system. And so I guess let's get started with Stone Barns and what I'm doing there. So currently my work in Stone Barns involves how to connect the kitchen farming project with urban community gardens. The Kitchen Farming Project, for those who don't know, started in result to how much COVID disrupted the restaurant system. So once COVID hit, a whole bunch of restaurant employees are now unemployed. And so the Kitchen Farming Project was a response to inspire everyone that was involved within the restaurant system to create a deeper relationship to where food comes from. So it's inspiring you to now start your own garden or your own version of a garden. Um, New York City is such a metro area. We see skyscrapers more than we see gardens or farms in the New York City area. So this is where the work came about. I saw the work that a lot of community gardens have already been doing. Being in the South Bronx, Via La Morada, that opened over a decade ago, we started this relationship with Community Garden Brook Park. Brook Park is such an amazing place. What it's doing and what it has been doing for many years, even before La Morada existed, was fight the food apartheid 
happening in the South Bronx. Food apartheid is a term coined by Karen Washington, where most people usually would use this term as food desert. But food desert is saying that this happened because of a natural thing. Nothing is natural with what happened with the South Bronx. So food apartheid is saying unjust racial structures was what led to a lack of food access to the people in this community. And so where the Kitchen Farming Project comes in to play is we created a partnership with Brook Park with all of the amazing work it's doing by listening to their needs and then mobilizing based on their needs. And some of the immediate needs were some easy things for us, which were like topsoil, compost, and wood to make more raised beds. And so we see the beauty already there of how a place where I work, Stonebarns, I can loop back into my community and support them. A community that is barely seen, a community that is very, very underprivileged, a community that is very under-resourced. Tell me a little bit about when your family opened La Marada. So 2009 happens and a recession hits hits hard New York City, but hits harder the South Bronx community. So a lot of businesses closed down. My parents had savings, and so they took all of their savings the same way, with the same faith and luck that they took all of their savings to cross the border to the U.S. and used all of the savings to open La Morada in the South Bronx because this opportunity arise. With my family's involvement with activism, because activism for us is our lifestyle. And so we knew we wanted whatever we opened, in this case being the restaurant, for it to always resemble that, resemble our family's ideas that activism should be a lifestyle. So your family has been activists since before they opened the restaurant. I didn't realize that. Absolutely. In short words, I vividly remember going to my first rally at probably the age of a kindergartner. And that just speaks to how much longer, you know, my family must have been doing it if I'm 27. Initially, our family's activism did start around immigration issues. And this is because it's something we vividly lived through. But then we also see how immigration issues interconnect with a lot of other things, whether it's pollution, whether it is police brutality, whether it's health, whether it's mental crisis. So we see how all of this interconnects. So activism can't just be one thing. It can't just be immigration. It can't just be fighting against the food system. It has to be everything because just like life, we are all interconnected with each other. Your brother Marco is an outspoken activist. He self-deported to raise awareness for the abuse in the immigration system. I really, I want to know so much more about him. This gets me so emotional because... You see personify the household that I live in. Um, you see the way my parents raised us to love your neighbor the same way you love yourself. And seeing how my brother was part of the Dream Nine. And for those of you who don't know what the Dream Nine is, is a group of undocumented students who self-deported themselves back to Mexico in order to ask for more, more than DACA. And so we vividly see how this immigration system in this country is so unjust. And it's just beautiful to have someone like Marcos being my brother. Um, He is in trial for infiltrating a detention center and bringing to light all the injustice things that were going inside there. Until this day, we don't know whether he is to be deported, but that can be an outcome of this trial. It just makes me feel empowered because I don't only see this 
via Marcos. I see this via my parents. I see this via my sister. And the same way I view my family, I view them so up high, is the same way my former students view me. It's putting yourself out there and telling people not to be afraid, that you're not the only one going through these experiences and being vocal for the people that are usually scared and living in the shadows. Carolina, it is incredible to hear you talk about your brother and all that he's done to help other people and the way it makes you feel empowered. Since you're the only one in your family who has status, it seems like maybe it would be easier for you to be an advocate. But even for you, the road hasn't been easy, right? Yes, to an extent. When it came to something as simple as applying to college, financial aid, and grants were pretty much immediately denied for me because I can't put down my parents. When I applied to college, just for reference, it was back in 2011. Things have been changing now, but just to give some perspective of some of the things people my age that do live in a family of mixed statuses do have to go through. It's like, yes, I am the only one with status, but yes, I am also living through what my undocumented family is living through because we are essentially seen as the same. Your family and the restaurant have become a gathering spot for the neighborhood. You're there for them, and they are totally there for you. I'd love to have you tell me more about that. So with the South Bronx, is such an underprivileged community. Just to give you some perspective of this location, one in four African-American youth is to go through the justice system. One in four kids have asthma in this place. Most families in this location live under the poverty line. So how are we not to help our neighbors? How are we not to be vocal about everything that's going on? How is when the press is glorifying La Morada for Mole, how are we not to bring to light all of these issues that are going on with our neighbors? So La Morada naturally became this community center And then there goes the thing about space also. We are in New York City. There isn't a lot of open spaces. So La Morada became that, what it is, like its name says, it's shelter. La Morada, translated in Spanish, is a dwelling place. So we naturally became the South Bronx dwelling place. Isn't the name La Morada taken from a longer quote? Can you tell me about that? So the verse in Spanish goes... In la casa de mi padre, muchas borradas hay, which translates to, in my father's home, there is a lot of dwelling places. A dwelling place, it's a place that is not owned by anybody, but it's also owned by everybody. My parents explained this so beautifully. When they were farmers, there was a lot of moradas in the farm. So when rain would come, farm workers would rush into this morada, into this dwelling place, and all share that safe haven from the rain. And so this translates to how we are now for our South Bronx community. That notion of La Morada being a safe haven is so incredibly essential to that neighborhood. But one day that safe haven was violated by cops and they arrested your sister. Can you tell me about that day? Yeah, that day definitely scarred me for life. To give some background on What happened during that day is that undercovers were arresting neighbors. And so naturally, when you're seeing an arrest without any warrant, no explanation, just like it's happening in all of the rallies going on with Black Lives Matter protests, you naturally record. And so my sister, being a good neighbor, was recording what was going on. 
with our neighbor. He just stepped out of the building that is located next to the restaurant and he was being pulled like like he was a serial killer or something. So naturally she just started recording because it's so close to the restaurant so we don't know what's going on and in case the neighbor does need this, here it is. And so for recording, um, my sister gets arrested. Um, so they take my sister and as they're taking her, there was already two undercovers inside the restaurant without us knowing. When we figured out they were undercovers, we asked them politely to please step out because we don't want those issues involved inside our restaurant. And so a third undercover comes in and very disrespectfully pulls out his gun and tells us, I will flip this place up down. And that just happened because we politely asked them to please step out. As business owners, you have the right to kick out whoever you don't want in your business place. For us, you see this not being the case because we were threatened by NYPD to practically get killed. So yes, you see why. This is so traumatizing. How do you expect me to go to, for help to the NYPD when they have threatened to kill me in a place like La Morada, in a place that is of peace, in a place that is of community? Tell me a little bit about your background before you joined your family as a sous chef at the restaurant. So with a lot of BIPOC communities, it's very rare to see or hear of a monetary inheritance. Um, this is very true for me too. But the beauty of having this mystic heritage, right, this indigenous heritage, is that inheritance doesn't need to be monetary in our culture. It can be something as trade or talent. And for me, it was culinary. Um, so at the age of three, I started cooking because it was the least I could do for my parents. As it's the case for many undocumented families, I saw my parents work from sunrise to sundown. Having them arrive to a warm meal was the least I could do. But as I grew older, I kind of took a detour towards the medical field with the same idea of helping people out. With a year left to go, I gave it up and I gave it up completely. And this is because I knew that that wasn't my passion. I knew that my passion was cooking. I knew that, that healing people via food is what I really wanted to do. So I took the savings I had to pay for my last year of college and use it instead to go backpacking all over indigenous towns in Oaxaca, Mexico, which is where my parents are from. They're from a town called San Miguel, Aguahuiticlan. My reason for this was not only to meet my grandparents for the first time, but it was to learn the trade from my elders to submerge myself deeply in my culture and to learn all of my family's recipe that I learned from my parents and aunts and uncles from the people who taught them. In my time there, I traveled from one indigenous town to the next. And the beauty of this is not only did I get to experience some of what my parents had to let go of from being displaced due to NAFTA, but I was taught from these beautiful people everything their town knows in regards to their town ingredients. My family's town is known for their chiles, and our most famous plate is mole. The town next to my parents' town is known for their mangoes, and the town next to that one is known for their carnitas, and the town next to that one is known for their goats. And every town knows how to really highlight their town's ingredients, from how to grow it from seed, to how not to be wasteful, to using everything. So it's this term of farm to table, but now I'm really, really living it. So I came back to the U.S. and enrolled to the International Culinary Arts Center because I knew I had to be the best version of myself to give the best of myself to everyone I impact via my cooking. 
And so I graduated with honors. And now here I am, like, today speaking with you. I just want to say, like, to all the minorities listening, que si se puede. I know life is very unjust. We see all of the protests and movements happening. But remember, you are strong. Y que si se puede. Thank you for that, Carolina. And with that thought of strength for all, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll hear more from Carolina Saavedra. I'm Lisa Held, a food journalist and podcast host, presenting Behind the Label with American Humane. Produced by Heritage Radio Network for Springer Mountain Farms, this podcast series dives into what the American Humane Certified Label really means. We're looking inside the farm certification process, beginning with the moment a farmer expresses interest in becoming American Humane Certified, all the way to a consumer seeing the seal on store shelves. And American Humane is our country's first national humane organization, founded way back in 1877. Now we certify nearly 1 billion farm animals each and every year. Despite that growth, uh, roughly 90% of U.S. farm animals are still raised without the benefit of independently verified science-based standards. Subscribe to Behind the Label with American Humane wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back. This is Dana Count, and you're listening to part two of Speaking Broadly with Carolina Saavedra. Carolina, I'm curious, you went to culinary school, right? Did you enjoy it? Yes, I can say I did enjoy culinary arts school. It was very tiring because I did pay out of pocket for it. So I was working with my parents during the day. Culinary art school started at four o'clock. So by three, I was on the sixth train on my way down to Soho to get ready for a class. So it was rough because mornings I would open at the restaurant. Afternoons, I would go to school. Evenings, I would go to school. And this is Monday through Friday. On top of that, you do get homework in culinary art school. You do get readings. And now, because my commute is so far and I'm doing readings with one eye open in the subway at like 11 p.m. But did I enjoy culinary school? Absolutely. Did I learn a lot? Absolutely. Would I do it again? Absolutely. The restaurant, as we've talked about, has had so many awards for the food. You're inside of it. I'm sure you think it's very special, but what do you think makes it like that special? You know, when you go to your grandparents' house and you're just so excited to eat because you know it's the best food you're going to eat. And it's just like that. It's like what Thanksgiving meals would be for a lot of people. It's going to Abuela's house and eating her food because it's that, because it's made with love. So let's talk about what you ate and what you learned when you were in Mexico, because you were in a community that didn't have running water. You were in a community that was so different from where you came from. I want to hear everything about that. So I come from New York City, right? I was born pretty much, you could say, in a cradle of gold compared to that place. Here in New York City, we have running water, we have electricity, we have gas. In San Miguel, Aguaveticlan, Oaxaca, Mexico, 
there's none of that. I was sleeping on top of a petate. A petate is pretty much the equivalent to like a yoga mat over here. And that's fancy over there. If you wanted to cook your meals, you would have to start from going into the woods and grabbing all of the dry tree barks that are already on the ground because that's what you're allowed to take to bring it back to your what would be your kitchen. If you want to take a bath, you are to go down the river and collect buckets and buckets of water for you to then take a shower or a bath, whatever you please. So I saw the reality of where my parents came from, right? They really came from a place that had absolutely nothing. If you had shoes, you're already rich over there. <laughs> you're already killing the game, you know? And so... It was such a humble experience. In terms of the food itself, I mean, I hate to use the word technique because particularly in that context, it seems sort of fancy and irrelevant. But what were the ways of cooking that probably had been passed down generation to generation there? Essentially, the recipes remained the same. The only difference was the equipment because here in New York, you do have a blender over in San Miguel. Our with the clan, you have a stone grinder. So you literally by hand have to mash whatever you want it to blend. Did people spend just crazy amounts of time cooking? That sounds very time consuming. So cooking there is very, very beautiful. There's no other way to describe it but beautiful. The work is divided. So let's just take, for example, something like corn to make a tortilla, right? That it will essentially become your taco. The way food works in Oaxaca is that the males or anyone strong with the ability to do physical work will go out to farm and take care of all the corn. The kids and the youth will be in charge of cleaning out the kernels or putting the kernels out to dry. Any hands-on, but that it's already at home work. And then the females or the chosen person to cook will take the product from the kids and then transform it into what would be the meal for the whole family. But you see how everyone, absolutely everyone works to make this meal. It's just not one person. This is a community thing. And so for a tortilla, first you would, again, start from seed, drying it, making your nixtamal, which will take 24 hours. Will you describe what the nixtamal is to people who don't know? Nixtamal is the process of adding lime and rehydrating your dried corn kernels. And this is in order to enhance the protein and give more vitamins and nutrients to your corn. So from nixtamaling, you take those. And then again, here you see the kids working to moled, which means to grind the corn that just has been just nixtamalized and then from the grinding point then it goes back to the person who is going to cook the final product and then here you see the person or turning this grinded corn into now a tortilla or a tlayuda or a sope a gordita so many beautiful things that can just come out from this one process of seeing this whole community working together. And did you feel when you went because you were with your own family but then you also traveled what did you learn in, in traveling around Mexico? I learned everything from how to point out what you are allowed to take. Because in indigenous community, you can only take so much from the earth. Because if you take more than what it's providing you, then you're going to kill her. There's no such thing as a surplus. Here, food is not a commodity. Here is seen as part of one. You are one with the earth. You are one with your food. And so that also involves 
livestock, you don't see it being consumed frequently. It's not the main thing on your dish. It's a side and the times you are allowed to eat it is when it's a big celebration. So like a christening or like a wedding or a holiday, you know, or if your livestock animal is very sick, then you're allowed to eat it. It's not people, you know, breeding animals for consumption. It's using them for their environmental purposes. So a lot of people in this town have coonies. Coonies are little turkeys in Mystic. <laughs> so that was part of my job to take care of the coonies. It was one of my form of gratitude to the people in these other towns who took me in under their wings, you know, and taught me everything they know. It was my version of being able to pay back because there is a language barrier. You um, have come back and you're doing a lot of teaching and some of the teaching you're doing is indeed around the food ways that you learned when you were in Mexico. Is that right? Right. It's a, I was raised in a predominantly vegetarian diet. To my knowledge as a kid, right, I just thought my parents didn't want to buy, you know, meat. Part of it, yes, it was that because we did live under the poverty line, so we couldn't afford meat. But then it goes back again to their ancestry, to their heritage, to their culture that you're not supposed to consume that much meat. So seeing how all of this interconnects with each other and now me being able to speak on it with people. It's a beautiful thing because now it's an idea that, that yes, I can still eat meat, but I don't have to eat that much. I remember you said that when you were competing on Chopped, you, you know, you open this and there's meat and you're like, oh, that's not where your expertise lies. Will you tell me a little bit of, about what it was like to be chosen to compete on Chopped? Yeah, so when Chopped happened, it was right when I had arrived from Oaxaca, Mexico. I just had a few months back in the States. When this opportunity happened, right, of competing in Chopped, I said, yes, why not? But then comes the baskets. And yes, I was just in towns, you know, working with livestock, literally keeping them alive. <laughs> My role was to feed the coonies. And so when I opened this basket, first of all, I, again, grew up with a predominantly vegetarian diet. So I didn't want to touch any of the meat that was there. When I saw the first one, which was duck and armyneck sausage, I was completely fine because with this indigenous culture, you do learn how to preserve a lot of meat because you don't want to consume it all if you want to consume meat for a long time then you are going to turn it into sausage or jerky. So that one I was comfortable with. But when the steak came about, <laughs> that one I did not want to touch. I'm lucky that my face does not express that. <laughs> did you enjoy the competing or it, it didn't really make such an impression aside from the fact that you had to be touching meat? It actually impacted my life a lot. Marcus Samuelson saw something in me when I competed. And so he offered me a job at Red Rooster. But again, it goes back to me knowing that I wanted this career and I knew I wanted this career more than anything. I would have to be the best version of myself in order to give the best to whoever I impact via my cooking. So seeing how I didn't know what to do with the piece of steak enabled me to sign up to culinary arts school. And from there on, I knew if I were to ever be placed in that predicament of being put an ingredient in front of me, I would know exactly what to do with it. I would never shy away from it ever again. 
I'm curious though, because you paid for it yourself and it's expensive. Did you feel like that education that rounded out your understanding of everything was at the end of the day important for you as a chef? It was absolutely crucial for me to go into culinary arts school and graduate with honors. The restaurant industry is predominantly dominated by male figures. I want to be the best I can for the public that I am going to serve. So I have to put myself through this training. But it's beautiful because now I have all of the indigenous training. So if you put me in the woods in the middle of nowhere, I'll be fine and I'll be able to cook a beautiful meal for you. But also, if you put me in an industrial kitchen, I would also be able to take out a beautiful meal for you as well. So from culinary school, you got some internships, but it, it seems from what you're doing now that you're sort of dividing your time between your family restaurant, well, some of the time, right? Because your full-time job is at Stone Barns. Do you want to be in the kitchen more? Do you want to be teaching more? Like, what is it that's really inspiring you right now, having had the culinary training, the indigenous training, the family experience, and now being in this educational center? Well, I can say for now, I see both places as a stepping stone to my goal in life. And my goal in life is to open a culinary center, which is for students and run by students that were formerly incarcerated, undocumented students, students that are usually not given this opportunity of going into culinary arts school due to their status or due to their income. Where do you envision the center? I know it's going to happen. A hundred percent in the South Bronx. This community needs this. <laughs> when I am scrolling through your Instagram, the pictures of your daughter are omnipresent what is it like being a mom and being a teacher and being a cook? It's one of those things that in the culinary world super hard to pull off. And I wonder how you're feeling about it. My child, Leela, I, I love and adore that kid. <laughs> it's definitely, you know, not something commonly seen. A single parent, someone that works in the food industry, someone that educates, right, in the education world. How do I have time for everything? And just like I did in culinary arts school, right, where if I want something, I'm going to do it and I'm going to push through it. So I did work. I did go to school and slept very late hours and very few. It's still the same with my daughter. But the beauty of all of this work is that I always do it with her by my side. When I go out to the garden, she's there with me. When I am cooking, she's on a stool next to me. The same way my parents had me. They had me next to them every chance they can. So I do the same thing with my daughter because I know that the few little moments that I have free, I want to spend them with her. And most of the days I am not free. So everything, absolutely everything that I can do from cooking to farming, I'm doing it with her by my side. We were talking about at at the beginning of the program La Morada and what that the transition has been during COVID. And so I I wanted to have a chance to to talk about what is going on in the restaurant now and what are you guys doing there? Yeah. So La Morada is located in the South Bronx. When COVID hit the South Bronx. At one point, the South Bronx was the epicenter of the epicenter of COVID. So now you have this. You have COVID. 
You have police brutality increasing in this community. You have ICE raids, immigration and custom enforcement terrorizing this community as well. And these are things, right, that as a family of mixed status, predominantly undocumented, this is a reality for us as well. It's not just our neighbors. And with the community members, it puts them in a tight spot. It puts them in a spot where do I pay for legal fees for now my family going through this or deportation proceeding or bailout money? Or do I use my money that I have saved to, you know, bury my loved one? Or do I use this money that I have for the next plate to feed my child? So naturally, we turn La Morada into a soup kitchen where we serve, just to give perspective, a thousand meals from Monday to Saturday. If for whoever has gone there, you see how small this place is, but we do it with love. We do it with integrity for this community. How do you make that happen? I mean, is it, are you working with Rethink Food or World Central Kitchen? So we do it via mutual aid. Mutual aid is pretty much today you help me, tomorrow I help you. When COVID hit, La Morada had to close its doors um, because as an undocumented family, when we apply for these grants, for these loans, we are automatically denied because we don't have status. So we used the GoFund money and the GoFund started from one of our neighbors who said, you guys need this because you do so much for the community. We should keep your doors open. And rather than taking that GoFundMe and saving it to keep our restaurant's doors open for the months to come, we turned that GoFund money into the money that are going now towards these donated meals. That is phenomenal. And then do people just, they come to the restaurant to pick up their meals or are they distributed by another group to those who need food? So the way the meal works is that volunteers come in on any given day and distribute these meals to the locations. Some of the locations the meals are being distributed to are places where now people that were just released from the detention center are being placed, which is mostly hotels. They are being sent to elderly homes. A lot of the projects near us have a lot of elder people and they can't manage to go downstairs because again, they are vulnerable. So you do not want to expose them. So our volunteers happily go upstairs for them. Um, A lot of buildings near us, their landlords shut off the gas and electricity line. And so now how, are, how do you expect the people that live there to cook? So we support a whole building <laughs> with meals. And this is just to name a few of the 1,000 people that enjoy and receive our meals almost every day. I hear these stories and I feel so much fear on your behalf and so much anger. I'm wondering like if those are emotions that you feel or you just they they're not productive so you put them away like how do you deal with the emotion that surrounds your family of mixed status and the way your community is treated i was raised in a very loving household where it was really really embedded in us to love your neighbor the same way you love yourself and this is true with the work we do at the restaurant this is true also to how both my mother and I carry ourselves back in the kitchen. Um, You hear of chefs screaming at their employees or you hear of chefs tossing a dish on the face of the employees because they didn't cook it in a specific way. With us is if you're not coming here happy, if you're not coming here with love, please don't cook the meals because that energy is going to translate into the plate. And it goes back to the abuela's house scenario where 
you know you're gonna get the best meal of your life in your abuela's house because she cooks it with so much love and passion and so much care. So at the end of each podcast, I ask my guests to give a shout out broadly to a woman who they admire. So there are many, many women (laughs) that I would love to shout out. But one that really impacts my life is Karen Washington. Karen Washington is amazing. She's fearless. She's such a strong woman of color. I see her as a pioneer of bringing awareness to the unjust issues that are going on in regards to community gardens and farming and BIPOC communities. Karen Washington is fantastic. Thank you for sharing. She's been doing food justice work for really for three decades and she's a great person to follow and a lot of people call her urban farming's godmother and it just makes so much sense considering all the work that you're doing both at Stone Barn Center and at the, the local park project that she would be one of your heroes. And the last question is, is there an ingredient, something that people need to know about that is better than the hype? As always, I would 100% say street vendors. My love for street vendors is so strong. So if there's anything someone can purchase, just purchase a thing. It doesn't matter if it's a water bottle or an apple, but do it from your local street vendors. For most of these people, it's their only mean of income, especially now during the time where COVID is hitting a lot of communities, especially communities of color. Street vendors need as much help as they can. Most of these people can't apply, and if they do apply for grants or unemployment, they will not receive it. So again, selling their products is their only mean of income. So if you can and have the will to, please, please, please support your your local street vendor. You're absolutely right. It's fantastic to support those people who are so like hardworking and, um, as you say, don't have a lot of other options. Is there a mantra or a thought that goes through your mind like when you wake up in the morning like is there something that you say to yourself that sort of gets you geared up for the day and gets you geared up for the challenges in life ahead and if so what is that so beside the constant si se puede i do live with my parents so we do share the same household so just waking up to see their faces every day just gives me the strength i need to push through the whole day that's ahead of me And again, it goes back to the love. Well, thank you so much, Carolina. I really enjoyed talking to you. I'm grateful for your time. I'm grateful for the teaching that you're doing and the work that you and your family is doing. And I can't wait to see your vision of a culinary school for marginalized communities come into being. And anyone who's listening, let's help this extraordinary person make that happen. And with that, thank you all for listening. Have a fantastic week. We'll be back next week with another episode of Speaking Broadly, where we hear wisdom from strong women. Take care. Speaking Broadly is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter 
at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without the support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.